more I thought about it and I realised this was a, you know once in a career opportunity it was no better time someone at the beginning of their career who really wanted it had a vision ambition um, and the work ethic to deliver on it I'm delighted to be hosting this new UCD School of Medicine podcast series, MGA Clinical Influencers. No doubt lots of our listeners are familiar with the MGA or Medical Graduates Association. But for those of you who aren't, the MGA plays a vital role in keeping you, our School of Medicine graduates, in touch with their fellow alumni across Ireland and around the world. As a global and diverse school of medicine, UCD naturally has been greatly enriched by attracting highly talented clinical academics who graduated from other Irish or international medical schools. They are now valued members of our UCD community and you will hear from them too. The MGA is your organization offering you a lifelong partnership with UCD School of Medicine. During this podcast series, where episodes will go out every two weeks, graduates will give us a trip down memory lane when describing their time at UCD and on some occasions in other schools of medicine and their experience as junior doctors. They will discuss their stellar careers in their chosen specialty and the highlights and the challenges they encountered during their careers, and how they share their expertise and coach others. On a personal level, they will discuss how they manage a decent work-life balance, where that's possible, and books for us to enjoy and holiday locations we should be thinking about. Our interviewees have compelling stories to tell, that will spark your curiosity about life in the clinical specialty they have chosen. I am Professor Murish Fitzgerald, Emeritus Professor of Medicine and Therapeutics at UCD. I was Professor of Medicine and Consultant Physician at St. Vincent's University Hospital from 1977 to 2006, and Dean of the UCD School of Medicine from 2000 to 2006. Importantly, I'm also a proud UCD graduate from the class of 1964. Today in our MGA podcast, I'm in conversation with Professor Helen Heenan. Helen is a native of Corrafin in East Galway, graduated from NUIG in 2005 and subsequently took her PhD there with her mentor, Professor Michael Caron. She trained in general and bariatric surgery, that's surgery for obesity, uh, in Ireland, the Cleveland Clinic, and at the Bariatric Centre in Chester, England. Uh, She was appointed as the first consultant dedicated purely to bariatric surgery at St. Vincent's University Hospital and St. Columkill's Hospital in Dublin. Then, more recently, she created her own piece of medical history by being appointed as a full statutory professor of surgery at UCD and St. Vincent's, the first woman to hold this post since the UCD Medical School was formed in 
1855 by John Henry Cardinal Newman, fully 167 years ago. Helen, you're very welcome to Afolcha Road. Thank you, Marish. I'm honoured to be here. Can I take you back then, coming up to the millennium? How did you come to the decision to do medicine rather than the plethora of other choices you would have had? I don't remember a single moment. I certainly wasn't somebody who always wanted to do medicine. I did pretty well at school. I went to school in the presentation convent in Tume. Um, but was never, had no relatives in medicine, um, had no exposure to it. I hadn't, but you know, so it wasn't a huge focus. I, I did, I loved science in school um, and I was really interested in anatomy, biology. So I had an interest in it, but equally so, I loved numbers. I loved the idea of doing actuary. So they were the two that um, I suppose I thought was completely different. I, I really wanted to stay in Galway. Um, uh, in, and I saw myself go to university at NUI Galway. And so I looked at what was available there and put medicine down at the top of the CAO list and was fortunate enough to do well enough and even start to get offered a a place. So you go into NUIG, which uh, was your first choice and close to home. What are your memories of the early years in NUIG. I lived at home. I was a very, you know, sheltered teenager. I'd gone to school early, so I was only 17, I think, at the time. Um, and uh, it was just eye-opening, but I had the most wonderful class, you know, most of whom were from the west of Ireland. At the time, it was just about the, the transition where the ratio of males to females in medical school was about 50-50. I have wonderful memories from the first three years with great friends, great teachers, um, including at the university campus. And then I suppose it really, you know, came to life when we moved into clinical placements uh, where I met people that have remained mentors for, for life. And I feel so proud to have been part of that class of 2005 and remain good friends with uh, with many of my uh, classes and are now working with many who have moved to, to work in UCD, which is interesting. I think we all thought, we saw ourselves at the time as staying in Galway, having really, not unlike court people, I think we never really thought there was much beyond, <laughs> beyond that. And so plenty of opportunity there. But as our careers evolved, we've moved a little bit further afield. So my classmates who are, you know, academics in uh, UCD would be Eleanor Dunnigan, um, yeah. Anne Doherty, yeah. um, Mark Coyne. Um, and, you know, I'm very proud to have gone to, gone to uh, school with, with those people. During that time, were there any teachers that particularly stood out for you? People who stood out more to me were doctors uh, who um, who trained uh, medical. Took such an interest in medical students, um, and I've you know much uh, more prominent memories of those uh, in teaching on clinical sites. Yeah. Um, so I mean, people who and many of them surgeons. I just found them so passionate about um, their teaching, passionate about what they did, and and really wanted to instill a love for that in their students. So. Michael Kern, as you mentioned, you know, really stands out. His, I'll never forget, his first day as professor of surgery in, uh, in Galway was my first day in Final Med. So and I remember him just bounding yeah. down the stairs and, you know, thinking, wasn't it just such a, you know, it was, he, he commented that it was one of the proudest days of his life. And it just made me stand up and wonder how he loved his job so much. I thought, I want that, you know, so yeah. um, I was really inspired by him. He's remained a fantastic mentor to me at all stages through my career, including now. Yeah. Uh, but equally so, he, he seemed to um, generate passion in his colleagues, too. So, you know, surgical teaching was really strong ago at the time and certainly still would be. Um, and his style of leadership, you know, was infectious, uh, you know, and he was so motivating and he really wanted the best for 
his students, his trainees, uh, and it's something I, you know, bear in mind all the time in this role now. Um, other people, Ollie McEnena, uh, was a GI surgeon at the time, and he was the person who instilled an interest in obesity and treating obesity uh, yeah. in me. Uh, Don Courtney uh, was another surgeon who was, again, a great teacher. Um, and in medicine, there was, again, Tim O'Brien, Fidelma Dunn. I thought they were, they were fabulous teachers. During that period, did you rotate out to the county hospitals associated with NUIG? Where did you go? Yes, at the time, I remember spending time with, um, for things like obstetrics, gynecology in Portiuncla um, and spent some time in uh, Castle Bar. And again, Ronan Waldron was um, somebody who was uh, quite inspiring to me and took took an interest in and for whom I later worked um, uh, as a a house officer. Um, And I remember spending some time in Altagelvin. There was a relationship between um, the NUI Galway, the medical school, and Altagelvin at the time. And that was a great experience to see a slightly different healthcare system as well, being an NHS hospital. So that was interesting. Um, And I also had opportunities to travel. I spent a summer um, in Georgetown. Uh, at uh, a VA hospital and then at uh, an academic teaching hospital this as well. This yeah, yeah, so that was wonderful. I went with all my classmates, Nigel Glynn at the time. Um, many of my friends went to, were further afield and, and spent time, you know, doing charitable work in um, in third world countries. But I remember my um, my mum had passed away just around that time. Um, and I thought, consider not going, but my, my family kind of encouraged me to go and yeah. go abroad anyway. And I'm so delighted that they, they did. I didn't particularly want to, to leave home and go yeah. away, but um, it was a great opportunity. But I think it was sometimes regret not going to, yeah. to join because doing voluntary um, with our charity in uh, Galway at the time that I was a member of was the VSA, Voluntary Services Abroad. Yeah. And we'd fundraised quite a lot to to um, go abroad and, uh, and do good work there, which my classmates did. So I still have a slight regret I didn't do that, but DC was a great opportunity. And then along comes uh, final med and graduation uh, and the uh, fraught feeling headed for your internship. Tell me a little bit about uh, your life as a junior doctor. When I undertook internship, it was the days pre-European Working Time Directive. So, you know, it was it was busy. It was daunting, like I'm sure every intern finds it. But um, it was it was also I, I loved it. I, I, again, great friends. We at the time you got to intern in your local hospital more, you know, where I know it's a little bit different now and people can go further afield. But I like the security of that. You're with your classmates. And again, our class have been so close that it felt like you were working with your you, you were working with your friends you know and uh, and with people who had taught you and mentored you so I was fortunate to get the uh, my surgical internship was with Michael Kern uh, on the breast uh, and endocrine service in Galway um, and my medical internship was in Casa Bar uh, so you know, it was again great year it was probably um, you know the, it really confirmed for me that I wanted to pursue a career in surgery I think I, I had uh, undertaken my six-month medical internship first. And I remember very early on in that, a day when we had a long weekend call and doing a ward round on a Monday morning. The ward round went on until after lunch. Um, and I think I realised that this wasn't for me when ward rounds could go on for uh, more than half a day. I realised I was definitely headed towards a career in surgery. Um, so, and as I undertook surgical internship six months later, yeah, that was confirmed when I got to work with the likes of Michael Kern and his team and the plastic surgeons there at the time did a plastic surgery internship. 
Um, and again, that was uh, you know, worked for great people. And was it then basic surgical training came after that? Yeah, it did. At the time, you went straight into your two years surgical um, house officer. And again, you could apply to your region uh, to do that. So I stayed in the Western um, SHO scheme at the time, which was, uh, again, another six months with Michael Curran by choice um, and a, a fabulous six months in Castle Bar. Uh, working with Ronan Waldron, Kevin Barry um, at the time. And interestingly, that's where I met my husband. So he was the registrar there at the time. Oh, he was the surgical registrar. So things are going out for a while after that. But we had a great, um, a great year, uh, year there. Um, loads of learning. It was great fun. Um, and uh, so, yeah, great times uh, at work and outside of it. And how, how, how soon did you make the decision, I'm going to do a PhD now? I suppose there was, in one sense, there was at the time the way surgical training was set up, there was no, it was um, expected that surgical trainees would take some time out, so-called, at the time there were dreaded gap years, um, and how long you took out was estimated to be about three years, and the choice to do a PhD was uh, you know, people had mainly undertook MCHs or MDs till about that time, about 2007, 2008. And then it just became more competitive. Uh, and the two years just before me, people had started to progress from MDs to PhDs. And, you know, I'm also competitive, probably slightly type A in personality and decided, yes. well, a PhD can be done. That's what I'll do. Um, and some people who I'd looked up to in surgical training, Aoife Lowry being one of them, who's now uh, professor, uh, professor of surgery at Galway University Hospital, um, had just undertaken her PhD before me. And the work that she had been doing, I was really interested in and got an opportunity to follow on from that. So it was a great opportunity to do enough um, translational uh, work to obtain a PhD. Um, so, and, and I was lucky enough to achieve funding for that through the HRB. It was through competitive process, but again, our, our pilot data was um, interesting and innovative enough to, to be um, successful at that competitive interview process. And I got funding to do a PhD. So, and there's a, a change of gears, a distinct change of gears then when you go from uh, the satisfaction of uh, surgical trainee into the lab. Uh, how did you make that transition? Oh, I dreaded it. And I really worried you get to a point just where you're, you know, progressing in surgical training, you're developing skills, and all of a sudden you have to, you know, take, put the brake on and uh, uh, do something that really I never really thought was for me. Um, hence why I dreaded those three years and felt I'd be lost. And Actually, they were the most formative of my career, probably because you have to, I mean, there's so many benefits from undertaking a PhD, aside from the knowledge you generate, become an expert in, the, the opportunities it presents to you um, and what you learn from it. But other than that, your time management, your communication skills, getting to work with different people outside of medicine, you know, in the world, in uh, in science. And, um, uh, and Michael Kern had an amazing setup in the lab in Galway um, to facilitate doing good work um, pretty quickly, um, you know, you know uh, uh, in a funded funded research lab so with great opportunities um, and I mean it was my responsibility to take uh, advantage of all the opportunities presented to me and I think I, I did that and I did quite a successful three years 
um, it was the, the work that I undertook was molecular expression of breast cancer, microRNA expression of breast cancer. Um, but then, you know, we, I soon realized that there was no reason I couldn't explore this in obesity as well and try and link yes. obesity and breast cancer. There was an obvious clinical link there. So, uh, and again, Michael Kerm is generous enough, to, generous enough to allow me to expand, to go on a tangent with research, but it was very productive. Um, and we uh, had a lot of firsts in that you were the first to identify these microRNAs in blood, published on that, um, uh, got a few opportunities to uh, submit patents through the TTO and go away. So it was, it was a successful year and, and lots of learning opportunities along the way. So there's a different kind of thrill you get from that compared to uh, doing the operation, which is thrilling in its own way, but they're, they're sort of qualitatively a bit different. And did you have to present a lot at uh, meetings uh, during that research period? Yes, very much. Again, and again, these are you know milestones on ours, you know, that we have to achieve. I suppose initially the goal was always you know get on higher surgery, be competitive enough to do to get selected for higher surgical training. So it's quite focused on on that, and um, you know the everything along the way was geared towards being successful in in, in that venture. Um, uh, so yeah, poster presentations, oral presentations, nationally, internationally. A lot of the work was, you know, the, they were the, the deadlines uh, to meet. Yeah, so a whole um, different set of skills uh, have to be brought into play for that. And uh, then uh, where did bariatric surgery come into that? When, when did that kind of hit you? This is what I'm going to do. It's a good question. And, you know, because there was no real bariatrics at the time, you know, I had, had no exposure to Donald O'Shea, who was at the time was establishing the weight management program in Dublin. Um, I knew of it. I mean, maybe Oliver McEnena was, you know, man way ahead of his time when I look back at it in understanding that I suppose obesity could be successfully treated with surgery. And whilst I was an SHO, although I wasn't working for him, I knew he was undertaking some bariatric surgeries in Galway. And he was very generous in, in allowing me, I suppose, participate and observe. Um, and, you know, something struck me at the at the time. He was very considerate in his care for patients with obesity. But sometimes I felt it was almost like a circus at times. I felt when patients were, there was a lot of, you know, oohs and ahs and uh, like at just, I suppose, the, you know, it was unusual for, for patients to undergo surgery for obesity at the time. And that struck me I, when I knew and read about the effects of it. I wondered why it was so unusual, you know, and it was just, I suppose it just wasn't done enough. So when I started reading more about, um, first of all, seeing the results from his surgeries um, and talking to him about it, uh, it made me realize that uh, this was something really interesting and a really remarkable treatment for a very common problem. Um, so, yeah, it started there and I couldn't, I, I was headed towards a career in breast uh, cancer management, really, based yeah. on my exposure to Michael Kern and all his team and his work. My research was geared that way. Um, and I suppose my head told me to do that. But yeah. there was something about learning more about obesity, weight management, uh, the effect of obesity on health and how um, you could completely change your uh, change health and change somebody's quality of life with these operations. Um, I couldn't get beyond that. So, um, you know, reading more about it, learning more, I, I really wanted to explore it. And towards the end of my PhD with the, some of the research work that I'd managed to do in obesity, um, I, just, I, could, I, I, I started behind the scenes exploring opportunities to do a year in 
bariatric surgery abroad. Um, and again, I was probably discouraged from doing it, um, but I knew I had to give it a go uh, to see was this something I'd really like to pursue a career in. There was no, I suppose, person, there's nobody in Ireland I could look to to see who has done this and, and is it a, a viable career. But um, my um, husband, he was, I suppose, we, were, we weren't married at the time, but he was going abroad for fellowship training in colorectal surgery to Cleveland. And I knew there was a really... Um, uh, high volume, um, a, an excellent center for bariatric surgery in Cleveland. So I did approach them. Uh, it was the third year of my PhD where I could do some work abroad in that, and they gave me a fellow. They offered me um, a fellowship position in the uh, lab there, uh, with some exposure to clinical work as well. I had my funding to go, um, and was successful in getting a spot in the Bariatric and Metabolic Institute in the Cleveland Clinic. So, and again, Michael Kern was um, generous enough, I suppose, to 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 let me go uh, to do to do that. But you were quite determined. Uh, because you were going against uh, this, uh, a certain stream of orthodox advice, but that was a brave thing to do. It was, and again, I wasn't sure if this would be a viable career back at home. You know, there was certainly no treatment program for no surgical treatment program for people with obesity at the time, um, and you know, but but again, I, I just couldn't get it out of my out of my um, head, and, and this opportunity came up, so I took it. Uh, and it was obviously very worthwhile. Um, I had just I had enough work actually in two years to complete my PhD, um, which was great. So I'd actually just written it up in, at the end of the second year um, and had a third year to spend as well. So um, with that, without that extra pressure of finishing a PhD, I was really able to throw myself into more bariatric uh, research work um, that at the time in a well-resourced inst- institution like Cleveland Clinic uh, it presented great opportunities to be able to study huge databases that were already collated but not really explored. I was able to work in an animal um, lab there uh, so the first I suppose bariatric operations I did were on rats they weren't that successful <laughs> I realised. Um, I'm much better at it in humans than I was in rats but I learned an awful lot from that and yeah. did well enough in the first six months there um, with the uh, surgeons that they offered me a clinical fellowship year um, which was great so I went through the matching system and got a second year and my husband as well was staying on for a second year of um, just post fellowship training so we spent two years in Cleveland um, and I did fellowship before I did my HST my higher surgical training which was again against the grain but um, it was an an amazing opportunity so I could do I suppose bariatric operations before I was able to do an appendix Um, but the skill set was very transferable so uh, whilst in Cleveland I applied for the higher surgical training scheme and was successful in getting on that so came straight back then into um they allowed me uh go into the second year of uh hsd the rcsi Um, were great when did uh chester come into the equation end of my HST, at the end of my um, SBR years, I spent four years then in Ireland rotating through um, and again I suppose once I was a year back I realised I'm not sure bariatrics is going to be a viable career for me there's no real you know, surgical 
uh, bariatric surgery program I can work in. Um, and within, I was back in Ireland a year and I met Oscar Trainer, who again, um, he retired in the year that I was uh, working for the hepatobiliary service in St. Vincent's as an SPR. But I remember really um, struggling with this. What do I do for my career? I, I, really, I know what I want to do, but yes. which was bariatrics. Um, I also loved hepatobiliary and upper GI surgery, just other upper GI surgery, um, benign upper GI, but couldn't see job opportunities coming up. And I was so focused on what jobs would be available in three or four years time when I'd be finished training. Um, and the, the, the obvious ones were breast surgery, you know, in breast, uh, breast and general surgery. Um, but I remember him taking me aside one day and just saying, do keep focused on what you would love to do and jobs will happen if you work hard enough. And, you know, it was when I was struggling again to, to go against the grain in terms of the, yeah. the latter years of my surgical training, I kept that to mind. And I'm very glad I did. Um, but after four years of not doing bariatric work back in Ireland, I, I knew I needed to upskill if I really wanted to pursue this as a as a career. So I looked to get a different experience um, and hence the decision to go to the UK. At the time, bariatric surgery had changed somewhat in the US in that they were doing um, more of one ter- type of operation, a sleeve gastrectomy, that I still felt quite comfortable with and to do other operations, get a different experience. My um, mentor from the US, Phyllis Shower, who's probably one of the world's you know, best and, and uh, most well-known bariatric surgeons, he advised me against going back to him for another year and going for a different experience. So I mm-hmm. um, found a, a busy unit in, in the UK and uh, got was successful in getting a fellowship there. Was that in Phoenix Health or, or that system? Yes, it yeah. was. And, so yeah. there's a huge throughput there, isn't there? You must have got a lot of experience. There was. Um, it was very different, you know, and, you know, when I compare the two, I got... I got different things from both fellowships, um, certainly different, not just surgical techniques, but um, the organization of their bariatric surgery program was very different. It was funded differently. So I learned, you know, a lot of, um, I think I learned more about how to do the operations in the US and how to manage services towards the end of the year and set them up, you know, as part of uh, Phoenix Health had set up services in different parts of the uh, northwest around Liverpool, Aintree, uh, Manchester. So it was a really good, good experience. We know that you got your uh, post at St. Vincent's, uh, but then the opportunity came where the chair of surgery came up in UCD. And because we know what the result was and uh, the significance of it, both for yourself, but for other people as well, you know, women training in surgery. Um, what motivated you to go for that one? Because you, you had travelled uh, a bit like Robert Frost on the road less travelled uh, on, on a number of occasions. What about this one now? Uh, yeah, this is an untravelled road, I suppose, in many regards um, for, I suppose, a woman in surgery in Ireland. And to be honest, I thought the post came up too soon. You know, I, I did uh, initially think, gosh, I'm, I'm too... Uh, young to apply for this and I thought maybe I'm too inexperienced I, I always I knew from very early on I knew from my training um, years in surgery that I wanted an academic post uh, and that I wanted to continue research work um, you know I got a lot from that but I was also I, I felt I had um, an acumen for it and I really enjoyed through the latter years of my training and first few years of consult of being a consultant surgeon teaching so I found my ex- um, exposure to 
teaching, particularly undergrad students, that was probably one of the most rewarding things of uh, rewarding parts of it wasn't even a, you know, it wasn't an expectation of me to teach, but I got a lot from it. um, And I felt I was I was pretty good at it as well. So when I knew that post was coming up, I did think it was about two or three, at least two or three years too soon for me. But the more I thought about it and I realized this was, you know, once in a career opportunity and there was no better time. Someone at the beginning of their career really wanted it, had a, a vision ambition um, and the work ethic to deliver on it uh, I felt you know that I certainly was um, suitable for the job and would give it my all so I've probably I was you know obviously delighted to be successful I think I've underestimated um, uh, and sorry I've overestimated what I think I would do in five years but I hope in 10 or 15 years I may have underestimated that (laughs) so certainly yeah it's less than two years in at this point but um, uh, and again, it's uh, it's a it's a massive workload, but but I I am enjoying it, and um, again, I'm well supported. I never saw being a woman in surgery any any. I, I certainly never felt a sticky floor or saw a glass ceiling. Um, just never, it was never made an issue of in surgical training, which isn't what a lot of people would would think. I was given as much opportunity as certainly any male surgical trainee, um, uh, supported and encouraged all the time. And I, st- I like to think it's, I know there are difficulties uh, at different points, but I think they're there for men too, you know. Yeah. So it's certainly, I thought the people I've met in surgery were certainly, it was a pretty equal opportunities um you know, experience for for me going through, and, I, and as I said, that's certainly I'm, I'm glad there's a, you know somebody in I'm in this role to to be visible for students. I think when I missed when I didn't see it the most was as a student, um, yeah. as a as a trainee. Things were changing in Ireland. So we have a long way to go to getting any kind of equity. Or, but if we look at the numbers of surgical trainees coming through, there's certainly over fifty percent are, are, are female at the moment. Yeah. So there's still a, an imbalance in people going through training and getting both consultancies and certainly positions in in academic surgery but I think that'll change with the caliber of trainee coming through. If we go on to the the, the challenges you think you're going to confront now um, having expressed your unease uh, you know did I take this post too early you're in it now you've got the responsibility um, what do you think will be things you'd like to achieve in the next number of years we won't say the number. There are a number of there's challenges on the clinical front, uh, challenges in terms of delivering, you know, higher quality teaching to the undergraduate students, and that the, the undergraduate student is changing and um, more tech savvy. You know, we've been, there's an expectation we'll deliver teaching differently um, to more numbers of students going through, but achieving a really high quality. Obviously, I, I, I want UCD School of Medicine to be the place any medical student wants to go. Um, and I certainly want anybody there to have a great experience uh, in surgery uh, and hopefully to generate, uh, generate you, know, uh, and, you know, many new surgeons from many new Irish leaders and our leaders in Irish surgery uh, going through UCD School of Medicine. So I'm quite ambitious for that. But certainly there's a lot of change we need to do in, in how we achieve that. I think surgical training in general is changing to more simulation based um, and more hands on training than didactic. And, you know, in the next few years, we're going to develop a simulation centre on site at St. Vincent's to deliver that. Um, And that will be in memory of my uh, dear and late colleague, Andy McDermott. I do want to mention that he's someone that was 
and um, I miss every day. He was so supportive of me as a initially a train trainee of his, um, and then as a, as his colleague and later as his. You know, it was hard to see myself as his peer. I found that difficult initially because he was someone I admired and respected so much. So um, I miss him terribly. But this a lot of what we do will be in, in memory, of, you know, of him and and uh, inspired by what he would have wanted for the Department of Surgery uh, at St Vincent's um, uh, and here at UCD. Then there will be challenges on the research front uh, as well. The biggest challenge at the moment for developing, um, I suppose, the research programme in obesity. I have a huge interest in obesity and women's health. And a lot of the research I want to do is is looking at different ways both obesity impacts women's health, such as breast cancer, womb cancer, pelvic floor disease, and of course then uh, maternal and fetal health uh, as well. But funding that work is, um, you know, it's expensive work to do and getting appropriate funding for it will be uh, a challenge. T- typically, there tends to be more funding through the large funding organisations for, for cancer work. Um, and obesity as a chronic, it hasn't been acknowledged as a chronic disease by uh, by many. It, 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 that's starting to change with better education around its causes and the good treatments available but getting funding to do that work is currently challenging so overcoming that challenge will be um one of the the biggest hurdles in the in the next few years um but it's it's i see that it's certainly doable and we'll we'll continue to do it with the highs come the lows at time were there any times when you said at any part of your career i'm going to give this up it's it's uh, um you know um, i haven't an enthusiasm for it or i don't think I'm up to it, you know, however transitory, transitory that thought was. I think surgeons go there quite often. I suppose complications, so any surg- surgical complications are inevitable. Um, it's taken me, it's still taken me a while to accept that. You know, I kind of, I can't, I feel um, I get really bothered by any surgical complication uh, and, and, you know, I take them personally. Uh, and I find it hard to bounce back from that and the things I suppose that Help me the most or certainly review and see is there anything you could have done differently and avoided it so it doesn't happen again but in evidence surgery as in all aspects of medicine but any procedure based discipline you're going to have technical complications uh, despite everything you try and do uh, really well so I do struggle with that and there are the days when I think am I, am I able for this but ultimately I suppose you know you're always surrounded by good colleagues and um, uh, th- and that that really helps I suppose firstly get o- get over the the initial hurt the, the problem and help a patient recover from a complication and, and then learn from it but I do find the support of colleagues uh, really uh, helps in those uh, difficult moments. And then you know with the, with this remorseless uh, tide of work that uh, occurs in all disciplines but particularly in surgery with the urgency that's involved so often um, I mean how do you keep on an even keel and using the cliche achieve work-life balance or at least attempt it you know, does anybody achieve <laughs> achieve that i'm not sure if they do i'd like yeah, them, i'd like them to um to tell me how to do it no again i do struggle with that but I, I love i love my work i do like i have an amazing family i have um you know a husband who's a colorectal surgeon at vincent's as well so uh, we have no work-life balance because work and like they're inter they're um you know intertwined uh we have 
have a two-year-old uh, girl who's amazing. That helped me achieve a little bit more balance um, and knowing that, well, actually, you know, there's a, a time in the evening when I have to come home, probably a little bit more time efficient in uh, in knowing that uh, I want to, to get home an evening um, to see her. So that's been good. I'm not sure if work currently allows for a better work-life balance than I have, yeah. but it's good. How, how do you kind of deflate from this kind of high pressure situation? Have you any ways in which you do it? Yeah, it's difficult. I suppose the one way I find really helpful are, are, is running. Um, and then it gives running and listening to a podcast at the time. I tend to then combine both. But I do, I try, I still try and fit in exercise. Um, I'd love to once a day, I'd love to do more, but I do yeah. find that the best way of de-stressing. Uh, it's, but if it's an hour in the day where I find that, you know, for the most part, people can't get me um, and that I have time to think uh, uninterrupted or to escape by listening to um, podcast or uh, even just radio. Uh, I find that quite relaxing. Speaking of, of athletic endeavours, I mean, when you were in, Cora Finn, which we all know is 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 a centre for magnificent Gaelic football. I mean, did you ever tug out in the saffron and green of Cora Finn? I think once actually they were short for a team for girls football. My sister was excellent at it, um, and yeah. they gave me a kit to put on, and they soon took me off and realised that I think they told me I was too timid for it, which I would have argued with that statement. But um, I certainly wasn't skilled enough at it. But no, and it's interesting like. They they, um, a few years ago as the senior team the senior men's team were doing really well and reaching all Ireland club finals Absolutely. they needed a doctor uh, and I think I was the only doctor in the parish at the time so <laughs> they resorted to asking me to be the team doctor and I really enjoyed that um, yeah. I really did again I'm not sure I was very good at that sports medicine wouldn't have been a strength of mine yeah. uh, but I learned a lot and it was a wonderful experience so I got to be a member of the team of sorts uh, in Crow Park um, for a number of all Ireland club finals, which they won. Right. So yeah, um, it's one of, <laughs> one of the men there, you know, it's that, that they're one of the highlights of, I suppose, career. Career allowed me to be in that position. So one of my um, uh, claims to fame at home is that I got to go park when my, when my brothers didn't. Um, oh, that's one upmanship. <laughs> my younger brother has subsequently gone on to uh, do medicine and uh, he has taken over from, he's slightly better at sports medicine than I was. Yeah. So he has taken that role, but I had a good few years until he was ready. And then if, if, we, if, we, if we talk about... This seems to be a bit ridiculous to talk about, but looking ahead, uh, having just been appointed to your present post, I mean, what would you like your legacy to be that you'd leave behind you uh, that people would say of you? Hopefully looking at something uh, at 20, 25 years um, where people who are now leaders in certainly the field of surgery in Ireland would look back and say that I either play some role in helping yeah. them to get to that point in inspiring them to continue uh, or to pursue a career in surgery and uh, be they males or females um, that I suppose from an obesity perspective I'd hope that the work that not just me, but the team that around me are, are doing to increase access to bariatric surgery in Ireland and, and help get that a funded treatment program uh, in Ireland, work that predominantly led by Donal O'Shea um, at the moment, but that that will be successful and there will be that at root access to bariatric surgery as an excellent treatment for obesity will be 
prompt uh, and it'll be available around the country that it won't be something that patients with obesity now have to wait six or seven years uh, to access um, so I hope we'll be doing better on that front and I hope that we'll through research I've led or participated in we'll have created far uh, I suppose I'm not sure if we'll have better treatments for obesity but perhaps non-surgical treatments for obesity that have evolved because we have a better understanding of how bariatric surgery works. You've seen a lot of changes already uh, even early in your career. Um, If you were to put out your crystal ball and gaze into it I mean what do you think might be coming down the tracks for surgery, academe, bariatric surgery? I'll let you pick in the next 10 to 15 years when we've gone through an enormous amount of change already. Absolutely. And I think I probably look toward to the change that has happened in cancer care to um, and in some way the care for, you know, non-cancer conditions will probably follow that path where we've moved away from, you know, one treatment fits all to more personalized medicine. So I think in the next 10 or 15 years, we'll, you know, have more individualized uh, treatment programs for people regardless of the condition we're treating them for cancer or non-cancer and specifically for obesity i think at the moment we we, we have probably a one-size-fits-all we have you know diet is so telling people to eat less or move more to you know treat lesser degrees of overweight or obesity and um, we have a very limited number of medications we can use and we have predominantly two to three operations so i think we'll have a greater diversity of treatments we'll understand them better we'll be able to pick out responders and non-responders in advance we're not able to do that at the moment and you know we won't subject everybody to the same treatments to as a way to to identify responders we'll have more more personalized treatments i think surgery and we will you know still be performing very similar operations but i still think there's room for improvement to do them better and make the patient experience better and technology is is uh, rapidly advancing in surgery not just you know robot using a robot or you know minimally invasive surgery um, we move towards doing if for bariatric surgery more endoscopic procedures um, so there's loads of uh, such opportunity uh, room for innovation certainly in surgery but specifically in bariatric surgery so it's a really exciting time to be there so alas Helen we're approaching the end of our allotted time your enthralling story has taken us from Corofin to Galway, to your surgical training in Ireland, to the Bariatric Metabolic Institute in Cleveland, uh, over to Chester and the Northwest in England. We've greatly enjoyed hearing your insights, particularly on the future of academic surgery and bariatric surgery. Uh, And it's been an honor to interview uh, such an accomplished groundbreaker and history maker today finish this interview by saying that it's been an enormously inspiring story uh, that you've set out where you very honestly laid laid forth the dilemmas that confronted you at different times, decision to go down the the fork in the yellow road in the wood, down the path less travelled, and how that has so magnificently turned out. We're very grateful for your coming to the podcast. Mila Buikas, thank you very much on behalf of our audience. Gurmaga, thank you very much, Maurice.